This is the You Can Learn Chinese podcast, part of the Seneca Network from SupChina. For everyone who's trying to learn Chinese or reaching for the next level, you came to the right place. I'm your host, Jared Turner, longtime resident of China, co-founder of the Mandarin Companion Graded Reader Series, and if you spell the words absolutely nothing backwards, you get Nahai Thuan Ilatula Sabah, which ironically means absolutely nothing. My co-host is John Passon, co-founder of Manor Companion, founder of All Set Learning, the Chinese Grammar Wiki, Sinosplice.com, and thinks the Discovery Channel should be on a different channel every day. So, you want to read the newspaper in Chinese. This is a common goal, but is it right for you? We're going to talk about what you need to know about Chinese newspapers, what it takes, and the options available to you. Guest interviews with Michael Berry, a professor at UCLA who specializes in Chinese literature, cinema, and pop culture. All this and more, let's get to it. Hey guys, this is Jared Turner coming at you from Utah in the United States. Hey guys, my name is John Pazden. I'm in Shanghai, China. How is everybody? All right, Johnny. Hey, before we kick into things today, we do have one review. And this review comes from Billy Witty from the U.S. here. He says, more books, please. Thanks. Well, thanks, Billy Witty. Appreciate that. And John, what do we have uh, in regards to more books? More books? I don't think we've ever heard that idea, have we? I'm working on a level two book right now. Yeah, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. No, we're doing more books, guys. We are doing more books. Don't worry. More books are coming, and they're going to get better and better. You're not going to believe it. It's going to blow your mind. All the best books. All right. So today's topic is related to the news. And specifically, I have a question that I think a lot of you might have asked before, uh, no matter what level you're at, which is, is reading the news a good goal for your Chinese reading? Hmm. Uh, I think a lot of you want to get better at reading. So is that the direction you should be going? What do you think, Jared? Well, you know, I think it really depends. This comes down to your motivations, the reasons why you want to learn Chinese. And, you know, I kind of think it's one of those things, if it is part and fits into your goals, then sure, why not? So what about you? Me, it didn't really fit in my goals. You know, I, I got to be <laughs> honest. I just was, <laughs> I, I read the news, but I just was never that interested in reading the news in Chinese. Jared's more of a fictional story guy than a real world news guy. <laughs> no, but I'm kind Sometimes. of the same way. I'm kind of the same way. But I, I got to tell you, when I talk to people about their goals for learning Chinese, there are kind of two red flags. When they're a beginner... And they talk about their goals entirely in terms of either HSK or news. It kind of it kind of makes me wonder, like, have you really thought about this, or did, are you just kind of randomly picking something because you didn't know what goal to set? So uh, that's really important. Now that doesn't mean the news has to be a bad goal, like Jared said. It depends. So I wanted to throw out some reasons that you might need to read the news as part of your Chinese studies, because I've I've worked with a lot of people like this. For example, journalists. Yeah, they got to read the news uh, in China, in Chinese. Uh, diplomats, uh, policy wonks, China scholars, especially people who, who research stuff like, you know, propaganda and how the news is used to influence the masses, you know, that kind of thing. Obviously, these people are they're in need of getting really good at reading the news and reading it a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, our friends at SubChina, yep. they read quite a bit of Chinese news. Um, all right, th- so those are obviously good reasons to read the news. Um, then there are some people that maybe just really like to read the news. So I have some friends who are news junkies, and they just love reading the news. And once their Chinese is good enough, they're happy to be able to read it in Chinese. That's cool. Or China watchers, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, these are the people that are just really interested in all the developments in China. Being able to read the news really helps. Like if you read uh, Sinocism, uh, Bill Bishop, he reads tons of news. And one thing he does that's pretty cool is he includes like some short snippets uh, in Chinese for the news. Um, So, you know, obviously, a lot of people like that as well. You know, John, something I'm going to point out that I do ask people when I hear this. I say, do you read the news in English or your mother tongue? And, you know, sometimes I'll hear people saying, like, no, not really. You know, and I'm like, then why do you want to read it in Chinese? (laughs) You know, and, and there's also an element here that's controversial, if you will. But, you know, a lot of the news that you get in Chinese is going to be of a different nature. 
how would you put it, John, <laughs> than what you might encounter from the Western sources? Yeah, a lot of it comes across as very official. But yeah, I totally agree with you, Jared. I don't read the news that much in English, so I'm not going to be reading it that much in Chinese. But I think there's also this kind of this mysterious, like, grass is always greener effect. Like, I remember when my Chinese was pretty low level, especially my listening, I'd get on the bus or something and everyone would be talking around me. And I'd just think, like, oh, man, if only I could understand these people. I bet they're talking about, like, the coolest things. You know, and finally I get to level when I can understand them and they're talking about, you know, oh, I forgot to got to buy cabbage uh, oh like you got to do your homework after school <laughs> you know it's just so boring <laughs> yeah it's, it's just like you're eavesdropping on a conversation that really isn't that interesting anyway <laughs> yeah very rarely interesting and the same is true of the news unfortunately when i finally got to the level where i could read the news you know without too much trouble i was just like oh that's it <laughs> uh, i mean obviously you gotta you gotta be careful about what you read you can't just read everything Anyway, just keep that in mind, and we're going to get into a little bit about why reading the news is kind of difficult so that you can help assess how much you want to read the news. So, um, Jared, what do you think? Why is reading the news in Chinese difficult? Well, I, there are going to be a lot of reasons, but I think uh, some of the key reasons uh, are kind of the characters that they're going to use that are a little bit more literary, that aren't uh, maybe as common that you would encounter in, maybe in chatting or in, in everyday conversation. You know, that's one thing. And also something that there have been times when I did, you know, try to read a newspaper or something. And I'm telling you, man, it's like when I come across those, those names, the proper nouns, oh, man, <laughs> that could really throw you for a loop in the news. Yeah, that's number one on my list, proper nouns. Um, so we're talking about people names, place names, company names, and probably the worst are the Chinese government's, you know, department names, which can be very oh, long. Man. There's because so not many. Only, There's so many. Not only, not, not only do you have to read them, but you also have to be able to parse them, right? Because they can be really long. And you're like, wait a minute, this name is still going on. <laughs> and, um, and, and to note, the Chinese government is huge, you know, and they're had their fingers in all sorts of businesses and industry and stuff. So you encounter, encounter those a lot. All right. And so you might be thinking, all right, proper nouns. I get it, but I can deal with that. And Hold on a second. So if you're reading a graded reader, you know, you learn the character names up front and they repeat throughout the story. But if you're reading the news every day, the proper nouns, you know, people, places, companies, government departments, they're going to change with every single news story. And it can be really hard to, like, remember any of them. You feel like you're starting over with every news story. So, you know, you might come to a point where you can handle that, but it's definitely not like a beginner, elementary, or even, you know, intermediate thing unless you have a really good reason. So, so in addition to the vocabulary with the associated characters, you also have news grammar. And this can come uh, as a bit of a shock to some people that, you know, they can read pretty well. Uh, various types of articles, but then when they read the news, they keep coming across these structures that are just different. And so, you know, news has its own kind of language that you have to become familiar with. And, you know, the good news is once you get familiar with it, then all the news becomes easier to read. But the bad news is that that makes the learning curve a little bit steeper as well. And I think one other side note about this is that you're you know, you're going to encounter more like Cheng Yu in uh, in the news, so you know those four character idioms, and if you don't know it, and chances are you probably don't. <laughs> I mean, it's a little bit more of an advanced thing, you know, having a little bit more nuanced grasp of the language, and you got to like sometimes know the stories behind these chung yu. So uh, you know, you're gonna encounter some of those too, and you're like, I have no idea what they mean here. So it's not necessarily gonna be a lot of chung yu, but yeah, all kinds of vocabulary too. And then the other thing, aside from all of this, you know, language related stuff, is that the relevance of a news story is is kind of a ticking time bomb, right? Like how much of yep. the news that you read today is really going to need to stick with you? Because uh, some of the things you read, you might go back and review them and, you know, reread them or, or whatever to make sure that you're, it's really sticking. But with the news, a lot of the time that feels kind of, you know, not so helpful. Now, obviously, there are a few uh, exceptions there. So, you know, uh, when COVID hit, I remember like, you know, all of our clients, they needed to be able to talk about face masks and vaccines and all that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, of course, that that makes a lot of sense. And that's normal. So there are certain so there are certain news stories that kind of rise above all the others in terms of prominence and urgency. So there are exceptions to that. 
But um, just, you know, your everyday one-off news story is, is not going to be relevant probably next month. So, Although, John, I'll just say an argument that if you are reading the news, you're probably going to be a higher level and perhaps you can plow through those. But uh, case in point, though, still, it's going to be a lot of stuff that, you know, it's, won't, won't necessarily see a lot of repetition. So all this might lead you to think, well, what about um, simplified news? You can just simplify it and then bring it down to my level. So um, you guys m- might have heard of the Chairman's Bow. It's, a, it's an online uh, service that simplifies the news for you. And um, yes, they do simplify the news. Um, but uh, the news is kind of hard to simplify. <laughs> and yep. if, if you look at the Chairman's Bow, you'll notice that like at the lowest levels, the, the news stories are kind of like uh, fluff pieces, a lot of them. A puppy gets stuck in the tree. <laughs> yeah, and we're, we're not trying to like uh, criticize the chairman's bow. It's just that at the lower levels, you can't throw in the name of a Chinese government department. And uh, <laughs> so what are you going to do? Yeah. So um, I sympathize with them because this is a very real problem. You want to cover the news, you need a lot of vocabulary. And um, so it's, it's not easy to do it all. And I, I will have give you know a plug there for the chairman's bow. I think what they do is great. Um, and it, you know, it definitely, if you are this, if this is on your like goal, your radar, what you want to be able to do, it's a great resource. Um, but you know, like, like John's kind of pointed out here, every different article could be a little bit different depending on the level. Some of the things I have seen on chairman's bow is that even if you have like an HSK three or four, they're, they have, you know, like kind of pop-up di- dictionary functionality, you know, with keywords and stuff. And, some of those articles are really dense with keywords, but you know, depending on the nature of the article and what it's talking about, you got to have that. Yeah, and I would say that um, the existence of the chairman's bow doesn't mean that everyone's goal for reading should be the news. I think it just means if you really want to read the news, then a resource like the chairman's bow helps you get into it uh, sooner. Okay, now on the topic of uh, simplified news, you might be thinking, well, aren't there other ways to simplify it? And there kind of are, and news articles, by their very structure, are supposed to focus on the most important details in the first one or two paragraphs. So one thing you can do is when you open up one of these Chinese news stories that are just like, blah, like some big, long article, and you know you're not going to read the whole article, well, just don't try to read the whole, whole article. Just start with, you know, one or two paragraphs. And that should give you um, an idea of what the news article is about. Um, so, so that is one way of simplifying it on your own. It doesn't really help with the vocabulary issue, but the length issue is very real as well. It can be hard to find articles that are realistically short. Now, John, just to maybe turn this conversation just a little bit, you know, we're talking a lot about the news, but you know, really, if you think about it, you know, in general print media, or you're reading like news or something online, there's also a case for, uh, other things that are maybe of more interest to you as a Chinese learner. And and specifically, I'm talking about like magazines. Uh, so you can find magazines that are can pertain to maybe a, something that you're interested in. I, I I think it's kind of funny, John. You know, I, actually, I remember one time uh, someone had a magazine, a Chinese magazine, and it was like a it was like a Chinese military magazine. And I don't know, my family's been military, and I, I was in the head of one of the the aircraft carriers, the Chinese aircraft carrier on there. And, I, and so I was reading a little bit about it, and I was just, oh, well, this is kind of interesting. You know, so, you know, you can find all sorts of different magazines and interests. I mean, gosh, we're talking about 1.4 billion people. Guarantee you <laughs> there's going to be a magazine for, you know, most areas that you might be interested in. And then on top of that, you know, you can also f- uh, find different, you know, WeChat official accounts that, maybe are related to fashion or baking or makeup or whatever you're interested in. And they're putting out content all the time. So we're, now we're getting a little bit just off of news and some of it could be news about an industry or, or about a, maybe a sub- subject that you're interested in. But you know, that's something that, you know, we always talk about here is follow your interests. And maybe if the news isn't right for you, maybe another area of interest is. Yeah, so let's get into the solution here. Like, if you do want to read the news, then how do you get there? And so we mentioned Chairman's Bow. That may be one way. But Jared's totally right in that other uh, things that you can read. I wouldn't use the term magazine because this is 2021, Jared. But there are lots <laughs> of websites out there. And, you know, we each had official accounts that are always putting out articles. There's tons of sources of other things to read in Chinese. And most of them will be easier than the news. So reading those will help you build towards it. Um, obviously, if you're even lower level than that, then uh, there are Chinese graded readers by such companies Ooh. as Mandarin Companion. 
um, that really? will help you. I hear those are excellent. They are. But anyway, that'll help you uh, get up there. Um, but if you know you've kind of worked your way up and you're trying to get to like full news articles, the one thing I would strongly recommend, and this is probably my biggest piece of advice for all you uh, upper, intermediate, and advanced learners out there, is you got to find a focus in your news reading, mm-hmm. and that will help you deal with the problem of words not repeating. So, like I've had clients at All Set Learning who they, you know, they want to keep reading the news on um, AI, or they want to keep reading the news on, you know, missions to Mars. Um, I, I had a client; she was focused on like China-Japan relations. So, if you keep reading the same uh, topic then it's going to get a lot better because the words are going to repeat a lot more. And that doesn't make it easy, obviously, but that proper noun issue is much alleviated. You know, and to also add another aspect on this, John, is that this really, if you're going to be reading about like uh, in this example about, you know, intergovernment relations or, you know, space exploration, that type of stuff, you're probably interested in this in your own language. And so if you can understand this in your own language, understand what's being talked about, it's going to give you a a big leg up when you're trying to understand it in Chinese. So that's another case for like sticking with your interests. Stay with what you're interested in. You know, I always, you know, if if you're interested in finance, well, can you have a a financial discussion in English, right? Before you go start reading about the finance news in Chinese. So same type of thing. Follow your interests. Stick with what uh, is going to be a little bit more familiar to you. And you're definitely going to have better results and a better experience if you do that. Yeah. And I will admit when I started my uh, my master's program in applied linguistics, which was all in Chinese, it was not really that hard to read the readings in Chinese because I knew the the you know the gist of these ideas in English. But at that time, I still struggled with a lot of news articles. Um, so... It, it it's really it's really a factor so definitely keep that in mind also one more thing if you're struggling to get to the level where you can read whole news articles uh there's the the arc newsletter which we mentioned last week which is put up by mm-hmm. all set learning that gives you little snippets of news which are digestible chunks all right so remember you can read the news but uh make sure that it's something you really need to do or really want to do and that there are different things you can do at different stages Follow your interests. Follow your dreams. Believe. All right, now it's time for a word from our sponsor. And today our sponsor is Mandarin Companion, Chinese graded readers. And today we are talking about our newest Mandarin Companion graded reader, which is Jekyll and Hyde. This is a Mandarin Companion level 2, 450 basic character graded reader it's a retelling of the story of dr jekyll and mr hyde by robert lewis stevenson and i think most of our readers really like how we uh we change the story a bit pretty much every version of jekyll and hyde changes the story a bit Uh, we actually did get one reader who was uh, unhappy but everyone else their minds were blown mind blown no real quick thing you know a spoiler on the original book the spoiler on the original story is that at the very end of the book you find out that dr jekyll is mr hyde what what but nowadays in our society automatically you just know that they're the same person it's i mean it's a term we use today so we you know we had to change the ending because otherwise there would be no big reveal at the end so uh we hope that you enjoy the story you can go out there and get it today it's jekyll and hyde manor companion level two graded reader using only 450 basic characters it's a fun one guys enjoy All right, now it's time for rants and raves. John, what do you have for us today? Do you have a rant or do you have a rave? I have a rave. This is one related to the news, actually. Um, In China right now, a big thing in the news, especially for parents, of of which I am one, um, is this concept called jianfu, which means easing the burden, and in this case, the homework burden. So um, you might have seen in the news that China recently passed this legislation which shut down all these like after school training companies. You know, they were doing like English, math, Chinese training 
for kids who are already in school. So basically, these poor kids have nonstop school all the time. Uh, anyway, the Chinese government was like, this is bad, and shut them down. Like, kind of cruelly to the companies, uh, most people feel. But the whole point was that, you know, kids are spending too much time studying, and it's not good for them. And uh, which some people didn't realize at first was the Chinese government is taking kind of the long view. Like, they had the one-child policy, probably a little too long, which they changed to the two-child policy, and then immediately the three-child policy. <laughs> and they're they're realizing that it's not that easy. Like, the babies aren't just popping out because they changed the policy. And one of the reasons is that, that Chinese families are used to paying so much money for their kids' education. Mm-hmm. And so now they're outlawing that. <laughs> but let me tell you, my daughter, she just started fourth grade today. She's very happy about it. She says She says her classmates have been liberated. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. I'm glad to hear already there's some positive effects in the lives of the kids. Oh, yeah. All right. So, Jared, what do you got? Rant or rave? Okay, John, today I have a rave. I'm just going to point out real quick. See, uh, two episodes ago, we invited listeners to take a survey, and I just wanted to share some really interesting little tidbits from that survey of all of you listeners out there who are listening to our podcast. All right. So, what we found out from you guys, uh, we got all sorts of listeners here, but in general, most of you guys have been studying Chinese for like one to two years. We definitely have people of three to five and 10 plus years, but most of you guys have been staying out there for a couple years. Uh, interesting enough, most people, hey, it looks like you guys are pretty serious students. Most people are studying Chinese two to five hours a week, but we have people also quite a sizable portion combined that are studying five to 10 plus hours a week. So you guys are a lot of serious learners out there. And also, we got some pretty decent readers out there, John. Most people seem to be at least a low intermediate or above. Not everyone, so don't worry if that's not you. Um, and we got some guys you know, out there pretty good on listening as well. And why did you decide to learn Chinese? Uh, most people out there, hey, you're interested uh, in just, you're interested in enjoying learning languages. And you, you, you're kind of curious, uh, you know, the intellectual curiosity and just the desire to connect with Chinese-speaking people. So it's pretty cool. I think it's been exciting for us to kind of look through some of this stuff and find out a little bit more about you guys. Um, I think here one of the fun things is what is the biggest challenges in learning Chinese? I'm telling you, like like half the people, it's like it's hard to understand what's being spoken. And, John, that's normal, right? It's hard to understand what's being spoken. It is Yes, John's nodding his head. You can't see him, but he's doing it. And uh, just people also, lots of people out there just don't have a lot of opportunities to use your Chinese because most of you are not living in China or in Chinese-speaking environments, you know? So it, it's a bit hard. And, and then, of course, tones. Tones. Tones are hard. So anyway, Will, we're, we're doing some of this stuff to kind of help understand our listeners better and also to help us with Manor Companion. And, you know, we're glad that a lot of you guys kind of reached out to us. And, you know, our listeners here are from all over the world. It's pretty cool. Most people are here in the United States, but, you know, we got a lot of people in the U.K., Canada, Australia, and even Germany. And, John, guess what? What? India. India. Got a lot of Indian people starting to listen to us. So, hey, we're, 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 we're now like a global phenomenon. Welcome, one and all. So my name is Michael Berry. I teach Chinese literature, film, pop culture at uh, the University of California, Los Angeles, where I also direct the Center for Chinese Studies. I do literary translation. I've published books on Chinese film. If you look up Michael, you'll find a lengthy list of articles and papers he has written about so many facets of China. Listen how his experience in China changed his life and his passion for the language resulted in Chinese becoming the focus of his career. Stay with us. Why did you start learning Chinese? You know, I grew up in suburban New Jersey, a monolingual household, monolingual environment. In fact, one of the only classes I ever failed or came close to failing, first it was Spanish and then it was French in middle school. And I barely got through either one of those. And then you ask your teachers, you ask your parents, you know, why do I need to learn this? And the answer I kept getting was it's required for college. And for a kid, that's the most uninspiring answer you could ever get. So I never learned another language. 
And it wasn't until I went to college and my freshman year of college, I became a voracious reader. There was a period where I was reading about a book a day. Oh, wow. And just felt like I was catching up, you know, on philosophy, psychology, history, literature, all these different disciplines. And so it quickly became apparent that I needed to do something else. I needed to get out and see the world, learn another language, learn another perspective. So one of the first things I did during my freshman year of college was go to the study abroad office and say, sign me up. I wanted to just get out. And I knew going to any Western country would be fulfilling, but it's the same kind of Greek, Roman, cultural route that we all come from. And I just Mm -hmm. wanted to be thrown into the sea and experience something completely, utterly different and challenging. (laughs) And so I I went and I asked, do you have any programs in Egypt or the Middle East or Japan, China? And so my sophomore year, I ended up going to Nanjing, and that was the beginning of studying Chinese. What year was this? Uh, So we can get an idea of where China was at this point. So this is early 90s. This is 1993. So, you know, a few years after Tiananmen Square and things were just starting to kind of reopen in China. You know, a lot of countries Mm -hmm. had shut down relations with China and then gradually people started to go back to China. Businesses started to open up. And this was a period of incredible social transformation in China. I think the first KFC had just opened in Nanjing. That was these foreign chain stores and conglomerates were just starting to enter the Chinese market. And it was just a period of incredible, incredible transformation. So, I mean, in subsequent years when I'd go back, all of the roads and buildings and places that I would frequent during my time in Nanjing, they were just gone. Not a single building ripped down, but an entire road pulled up mm-hmm. and turned into a four-lane highway or something. You know, just the kind of transformation that you can imagine people living in that environment, the type of impact that that would have on you if you're living in a neighborhood for your whole life and all of a sudden within the span of two or three or five years, you know, it's just completely remade. And this was just the cusp of that. And there was an incredible curiosity on the part of people you would meet to learn about America. You know, you would get people just walking up to you on the street and wanting to make friends or practice English. And for me, you know, I was young, I was 19 years old, and it was a formative period in my life. And it just ended up having an incredibly powerful impact. Also to see things that, you know, as a fairly, you know, a middle class, I guess, privileged kid, you don't see homelessness in suburban Mm -hmm. New Jersey. But you would counter these five-year-old kids begging you for money, you know, at that time. You would see these hei hu xiao hai, you know, these kids without a hukou, you know, without a residence mm. permit, who would come from the countryside and they can't go to school. If they get sick, they can't go to a hospital. I mean, I remember people often talk about culture shock. I, I don't think I ever felt so-called culture shock hmm. when I went to China. But when I came back... Uh, a year later and went back to America, that was culture shock because Mm -hmm. I had changed so much. And all the people around me, my friends, my professors, my family, they were exactly as they were. And I had had this life-changing experience and you just felt like there was this lag and you couldn't relate. That's amazing story. It's hard for me even to imagine what China was like then. You know, I lived in China eight years, but I mean, it was a very different time than as opposed to the 90s. But what do you think those biggest changes that you experienced were? You know, I, I didn't even have a passport when I went to China. I had to apply to get a passport. I just had a very limited experience. And so one of the big transformations was realizing the depth and complexity and multifaceted experience of what the world really is. There's a, a lot out there besides you know suburban America. And I mean, now looking back, it's kind of shocking how sheltered I had been for the first 18, 19 years of my life and how limited my experience and cloistered that experience had been. And this was an experience that just blew that wide open. And that's one reason why I always, when I encounter undergrads who are even mildly playing with the idea of studying abroad, whether that's in China or Europe or anywhere, my answer is always go, go, go and spend it. The longer mm-hmm. you can spend there, the better, because it's going to change your world. And the thing that people, I think, often maybe don't quite understand is they think it's going to change their understanding of this other culture, and it will, and they're going to learn a lot about whatever country or language they're going to. But it's also going to more profoundly change your 
own understanding of who you are, your own culture, your own history, the environment you came out of, because it's only when you step out of that, you get to see it a little more clearly and get some sense of perspective. And so I think that was probably one of the the first lessons is giving you that kind of perspective, not only on others, but also on yourself. I I do want to hear a little bit about the Chinese language development of the stage. What I'm gathering here is that when you first went, you didn't speak Chinese or maybe you had just started. What, What was that like? And how did your Chinese studies change or progress during this time? Yeah, I didn't speak a word. And I, I mean, those early days, I remember going to restaurants and having waiters hold my hand and bring me into the kitchen and holding up, you know, frozen chickens and piles of noodles <laughs> and pointing and using sign language and drawing little scribbles on pieces of paper to try to communicate. And I just threw myself in and the program I was in, we had about two hours a day of intensive Chinese and later it was mm-hmm. up to four hours a day of intensive Chinese and and then I would go out and go on little adventures to all the little temples and parks and scenic places in Nanjing. And I would take buses. I don't think I ever rode a cab. I, I would just take buses. I would take uh, my bicycle. And that was a way to force you to interact with local people and just make conversation, even with a very limited vocabulary. But I don't think for the first six months, I think I could really could not communicate. It was quite pathetic where you know that level of my language uh, which is you know when you're starting that's just how it is i don't think yeah. and even though i had studied music i couldn't hear the tones and actually my first chinese teacher told us don't worry about the tones you're a foreigner when you speak people will understand mm. you and so mm. i didn't even pay attention to the tones and then about six months in when i my speech started to pick up all of a sudden i realized you know, it was atonal and I had to relearn everything and start really being very conscious about the importance of the tones. And I just kept at it. And people often, I think, want a shortcut or a magical formula how to learn Chinese or learn a language. And the one magical trick that I've found is there are no shortcuts. The quicker you embrace that, I think the quicker you're going to start making progress. I mean, maybe there are a very small number of genuinely brilliant people that can just pick it up very naturally and intuitively and very quickly. But I'm certainly not one of them. And I think most people are not in that category. I think there's really no replacement to hard work. And this is, I think, another challenge for a lot of people who try to learn Chinese is, I can't tell you how many foreigners learning Chinese have said, I just want to learn to speak. I'm not worried about the writing or Mm -hmm. the reading. As long as I can speak, that's fine. And sure, that's great, but you're very quickly going to hit this glass ceiling and you're never going to progress Mm -hmm. above that because the reading, the writing, the listening, the speaking, they're all interconnected. They're all part of this kind of continuum. And I think you've got to work on all four of those. But Michael, I want to hear a little bit more about like how you got to where you are here today. You are translating articles. I mean, you're involved in like the film industry or, you know, at least tangentially there in China and, and things like that. Okay. So you came back from China, your whole worldview was impacted and changed. I mean, what kind of happened where you decided this is my career. This is what I want to do in my life. I had a very unorthodox college education. I spent five <laughs> years at four universities, three majors, and basically 12 to 18 months at each of those four schools. I started (laughs) off as a jazz studies major, then I was a philosophy major, and then ultimately I ended up graduating as a Chinese major. So after a year in China, I came back to the U.S. I mean, one thing I'll go back to is the importance when you do study Chinese or study abroad, the investment of the time is so essential. So I remember very clearly seeing those people who went for three months, like one, one semester, they came and went, And it was like, it's nothing. And then I remember months later thinking, wow, where I had gone in four months or six months or eight months or 10 or 12 months. And so I think a semester really isn't enough time. And so I ended up applying for a fellowship offered by the Taiwan Ministry of Education that was sponsored by the Fulbright Hayes Foundation in Mm -hmm. Washington. And then I got a fellowship to go to Taiwan for a second year. So I ended up going to Taiwan. And then by that time, I was able to take advantage of some of the foundation I had built in Nanjing and start really working with content. 
And what I mean by that is I was basically doing ABC stuff in Nanjing. Mm -hmm. By the time I got to Taipei, I'm going to lectures, I'm going to Chinese films, I'm you know going to concerts, I'm making friends that were just speaking Chinese and reading novels in Chinese. So you must have put a lot of work and effort into your Chinese to even get there, right? I'm going to open up a little bit of that. I think probably part of my personality, there's certainly a little bit of an obsessive compulsive thing <laughs> in me. And, and I think you can channel that in different ways. And when I was a kid, it went into art. For many years, I was just painting and drawing. Then it was transferred into music and I was doing jazz and bass guitar and upright bass. But I think Somehow, when I started learning Chinese, I think it was the same drive, the same focus, the same direction that I had put into those earlier pursuits. I just redirected it. And it's probably equally easy for me or a lot of people to have put that in a negative place. And it could have gone to alcoholism or gambling. But I think when you have that kind of obsessive compulsive drive, you just need to channel it in the right place. And for me, language study for a long period of time became, I guess, an obsession. So anyway, back to the timeline. So I spent this year in Taiwan doing intensive Chinese language study. And by the time I got back, my language level was at a place where I could read novels. I could really start using wow. the language in a more practical manner. And so that led me to... I guess my senior year in college, where it started with one of my professors who was doing an edited volume of an academic journal, and he asked if I would translate a chapter from Chinese into English. And I remember it was just a very fulfilling, exciting intellectual experience. And so a few months later, I'm getting ready to graduate college. I had applied to grad schools, didn't know where I was going to go, what I was going to do, but I needed a gig for the summer. And for my younger years, I had been a waiter, you know, done all kinds of odd jobs, but I thought, why don't I do something where I can use my Chinese? And I thought, let's try translating a novel. And so I was mm. a senior in college and I wrote a fax. So I faxed a Chinese author named Yu Hua, who had a novel called A Huadra or To Live. And I had read it while I was a student in Taiwan. I read it in one night. It was one of those just mm. works that blew me away, just grabbed me and didn't let go. And kind of haunted me. And I thought if there was one novel I wanted to translate at that period, that was it. And so I sent him a fax, completely prepared for him saying, of course not. I never heard of you. <laughs> Who are you? Right. And, and then I was shocked when he agreed and said, sure, let's do it. And so that was ended up being the first novel I translated. It wasn't published for many, many years later. But my senior year into the summer after I graduated, that was my first kind of foray into literary translation. It's what had been kind of an interest learning Chinese. I started to realize there were a real career path forward in terms of what I might be able to do with this. And that's where I started also really seriously considering doing a PhD in Chinese literature and culture. And after a few more detours, that was the path I ended up taking. So what is your PhD in so it was from Columbia University, the Department of East Asian Languages and Cultures. And my first area was modern Chinese literature. You have to pick secondary fields. And my first field was Chinese film. Part of that evolved out of an academic interest, but a big part actually came from being in New York City. And as you know, York's a big cultural hub and all kinds of Chinese artists, writers, filmmakers are always coming through town. And I started getting a lot of calls to interpret for Zhang Yimou and Zhang Ziyi and Xie Jin, Hou Xiaoxian, Yu Hua, Mo Yan. I mean, whenever there would be these lectures or dialogues or uh, Q and A's after a screening, I started getting these gigs, and uh, and that was great for one, you know, building connections with people in the literary field and in the film industry. It also gives you a kind of unique insight into how the artists think, how they work, their approach to the creative process. And that started pulling me closer and closer to the industry in interesting ways. It also led to my first book, which was called Speaking in Images. Mm -hmm. And it was a collection of interviews with Chinese film directors from China, Taiwan, and Hong Kong. For most people listening to this, Chinese cinema, Chinese TV shows are probably going to be a little beyond them at this stage. So like, what are some of those key differences that you have found between Hollywood versus the kind of cinema that's being produced in China? Uh, the first thing I would say is that in order to understand contemporary Chinese cinema, you have to go back historically and look at 
the radical differences in terms of cultural production in China versus the West. So one key text that I often teach in my classes is actually from good old Mao Zedong in 1942, the Yan'an Talks on Art and Literature. And in mm. 1942, Mao held this forum in Yan'an where he basically set down the groundwork of the framework was for all artistic production moving forward. It would be incredibly influential for generations of writers, filmmakers, artists moving forward in China, and especially from during the so-called high socialist period, so in 1949 all the way through till the end of the Cultural Revolution. Basically, all art, whatever it was, whatever category, falls within that rubric. But even today, you still feel the impact of that. And if you really had to boil it down, it's that art is in the service of politics. It's propagandistic. Mm -hmm. It's made for the three classes of workers, peasants, and soldiers. It's meant to support socialist policies. It should not be critical. It should be laudatory. It should be clear and simple. It should not be complex or opaque. Characters should be black and white. Stories should have clear ideological messages, etc. It goes on. But mm -hmm. for so much of Chinese film and, and literary history, a very large part of the works fell into this rubric. There was a period maybe in the 90s into the early 2000s where it felt like maybe that was a historical relic. However, under Xi Jinping, it's really come back. And film is now under the jurisdiction of the Ministry of Propaganda, aka the Ministry of Publicity. And you're seeing more and more of the so-called main melody films, which are basically propaganda films espousing the proper values, the proper worldview, the proper view of history. When I say proper, I'm talking about politically correct, mm -hmm. meaning that it's in line with the CCP's view of these things. And so we've kind of come full circle, and we're very much in China. If you look at even the top 10 films of last year, I think maybe seven or eight of them kind of fall into this category. Oh, really? And so it's really made a big comeback. And so th that's one of the biggest differences. If you're looking at Western film, the driving force is the economic sustainability and viability of the so-called product, right? Or is it going to work at the box office? In China, you do have that, but you also have the political viability of the film. And that's a dimension that I mean, there's, of course, a political dimension in Hollywood films as well, but nothing close to the level of political intervention that you're seeing in the Chinese film industry. So I've had to boil it down to one thing. That's a very large one. Yeah. But, but, of course, there's just different modes of storytelling, different aesthetic sense and sensibilities. Like Chinese humor often works very differently than Hollywood films' humor. I had a, one producer who I talked to was asked about The Mermaid, the blockbuster film by Stephen Chow. He, he, he's like, this is garbage. I can't believe it could make that much money at the Chinese. He's like, explain this to me. Do people really like this? I just can't figure it out. And I think a big part is it's just a different aesthetic. It's a different sensibility. And that's something that comes with the language. It comes with the culture and the history. And it's not always accessible via subtitles. And that's also why learning the language is so important because, of course, you can learn a lot about another culture just by watching subtitled films and reading about it in translation, but there's always going to be a point that you can't penetrate. And that's why I think learning the language is just so essential to penetrate to that deeper level or get a more sensitive, a more nuanced understanding. You know, this is interesting to hear. We do encounter this a little bit where we've had experiences where we're adapting one of our graded readers to China, but we have Chinese writers writing them and they come out with something and we're like, that's not funny. It's not funny to a Western audience or this is missing the point, you know, because we actually have to adapt those stories in Chinese for Western audiences, but we also adapt the story content. So it's interesting as we go across that, some things that for Westerners we'd see, oh, this is clearly funny or this is not funny. But to some of our Chinese writers, yes, it is. Definitely. And that's why when you think of Chinese films that have done well internationally, you know, you think of mostly the action films, you know, whether yeah. it's Crouching Tiger, Hero, because those are relying on physicality, which if you're fighting someone, it's pretty much the same deal, right? <laughs> it's immediately legible. It's immediately understandable. Yeah. You don't have to interpret it, right? <laughs> right. But if it's, 
black humor, or it's a, a joke by Stephen Chow or Zhao Benshan or any one of these Chinese comics, or especially the probably the best example is Xiangsheng、uh, or Crosstalk, which is、mm-hmm. you know this traditional form of Chinese stand-up comedy. That's almost impossible to render、yeah. in a way. That's going to have the same impact to Western audiences as it does the Chinese audiences, because it's just so laden with wordplay, with cultural allusions, with historical allusions, and so there are some things they fall on their face when you try to、yeah. cross that like bridge. It's like trying to translate a pun to Chinese, you know? Right, I mean, it doesn't work, right? Right. And so, during my interpretation years, when I used to interpret for all these directors or writers or, or various events, for me, one of the big Signs that your interpretation is solid or, or doing what it should be is if the Chinese speaker tells a joke and the audience laughs, and then when you do your interpretation and you tell the same joke in English, they better laugh. They better get the same beats. <laughs> Otherwise, you're not doing justice to you know. And so many interpreters, you would find that. That's not the case, you know. So you'll see someone in Chinese, you know, a director will say, "Wow, 我拍这个片子实在太难了啊，折腾了好好多年了 And then the interpreter say that the film was very difficult to make. I spent many years suffering. It's like no, no. I mean, the, the, yes, the 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 word for word meaning is there, but you've got it. Being almost an actor, and、yeah. you've got to say, "My God, this film killed me." I, you know, I slaved on this thing for years, or you know, <laughs> you need to kind of summon the spirit of what that person's saying and really convey it. And that is especially the case with humor, so that、uh, you want them to laugh, and you got to find the right kind of equivalence. And it's sometimes very hard to do that on the spot, but that's always a challenge. There's always going to be something that is lost and you can't access, and that's why we learn languages. If everything was word for word exactly in translation, then there's no curiosity. There's nothing to discover. But that's the beauty of language: that there is a, a whole universe that you can only access if you learn that language. So, Michael, one of your more recent projects was the Wuhan Diary. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. So over the years, I've done a lot of literary translation projects, translated you know mostly novels. And one of my more recent novels was a book called *Soft Burial* by a writer named Fang Fang, who is based in Wuhan. Now, when the coronavirus outbreak first began, I would text Fang Fang and ask, make sure she was doing okay, just check in on her, she and her family. I didn't realize that she had started writing a blog online that went viral, and she started this quarantine diary on. I think on January twenty fifth of twenty twenty. Twenty fifth lockdown in China happened. I think within days of that. Yeah, the Wuhan lockdown began on January twenty third. So two days after the lockdown, she started this blog, this quarantine diary, and it very quickly went viral. And she started getting two million hits, three million, five million, ten million. Started getting、wow. as many as fifty million readers. Many of them staying up late at night, waiting for the next installment to be uploaded, and it became, you know, of course there were a lot of accounts of what was happening, especially from state media, CCTV, Xinhua. Everyone had their account. There were a lot of independent journalists, international journalists, but somehow this account cut through all the noise, and it became the kind of go-to platform for people to get the so-called real story of what was happening. Because of course, government media is going to have its own. Spin. Whereas Fang Fang was, there was a certain truth where, as she saw it, she said it. And when the government screwed up, she called them out. When they did things good, she gave them credit. She had information about what the situation at local hospitals, the condition that doctors were facing, basic medical information about COVID nineteen. You know how it's transmitted and how to protect yourself. You know, keep in mind this has just started. Everyone is kind of walking into this dark tunnel, and so she's trying to understand what's happening and process that. And it was a very raw explosion of her emotions, of her fear, her anxiety, her anger. I read, I think, one or two installments. And I just said, "Wow, this is so much more human. Just puts a human side on it that we're not getting from CNN or CCTV or any other official media sources. There's limits to what you can do in five minutes or in a thousand、mm-hmm. words. But this was, you know, sometimes three thousand words every day, five thousand、oh, words,、wow. you know, long, long entries, and it 
built up. And so you really got a real sense of what people were going through during this first lockdown. Of course, we were all have now know what it's like to live under a lockdown. The whole world mm-hmm. does. But mm-hmm. nobody can go back and understand what it was like during that first lockdown and the fear and anxiety when they were just figuring this thing out. So anyway, I, I write to Fang Fang and I said, why don't we put the novel aside and let's just do this. And I'd like to translate it and let's publish it as a book. Uh, she hesitated at first because she wasn't even done writing. The mm-hmm. COVID-19 was still on. They didn't, the word COVID-19 didn't even exist at that point. It was just called yeah. the, the novel coronavirus. Yeah. And so she said, I think it's premature. Let's just put a pause on it. But about a week later, she wrote me back and I started translating and it became an experience unlike anything I've ever done in my life. So I, mm-hmm. over the next, I guess, six weeks, I was working seven days a week, more than 10 hours a day, translating more than 5,000 words every single day. And I was trying to catch up and, and there was a, a pressing sense that this thing that's being unleashed is being completely misunderstood and ignored in the West. And so many people didn't realize what was happening. They didn't realize the brevity of the situation and how it potentially could also impact us. I remember as I'm translating it, I went to see my internist and I mentioned what was happening in Wuhan. And he said, oh, it's just like the flu. It's not a big deal. And I had just read an entry where she talked about a family of four being killed within days after contracting Mm. COVID-19. Those kind of experiences made me feel just how important it was to get this voice out there and to wake people up and make them realize, no, it's not the flu. This thing can kill you. You have to take it serious. And so I worked around the clock and the book was eventually published in mid-May of 2020. Wow. Basically, I finished the translation just a few weeks after she completed it. It was, you you hear about simultaneous interpretation. This was kind of simultaneous (laughs) translation. And I was also kind of reliving Fang Fang's experiences because as I'm translating, LA became under lockdown mm-hmm. and all the things that she had been experiencing and writing about in the diary, very quickly I began to experience in my own everyday life. So it was a really uh, surreal experience that I was going through d- doing this. And probably the most surreal part of it was that Fang Fang also had become the target of nationalist trolls and they started sending her death threats and she became the subject of a major disinformation campaign. And when news broke that this book was going to be published internationally, I also got pulled into that. And so I started receiving the death threats and the hate mail and Mm. there started to become fake news (laughs) reports circulating in the Chinese internet about me. I was a CIA agent, that I was an operative, that this was a, a the proverbial knife that we were handing over to the West to hurt China when you know, in reality, it couldn't have been further from the truth. We were trying to do something to raise awareness, to help people. Fang Fang donated all of her proceeds to the families of doctors and medical workers who died during the early outbreak. Wow. And so we were really trying to do the right thing. And unfortunately, given the quickly transforming political context of that time. We're talking April, May, June of 2020, where the US-China trade tensions were heating up. COVID was spreading rapidly. Trump started calling it the China virus and using other racist language to characterize COVID-19. And this became politicized and it took on a life of its own. And the whole campaign against Fang Fang would last more than a year. Even today, you still get troll attacks. I I guess I looked on Amazon and I saw all those one-star reviews and I was I heard about this and I went to look at them and I'm like, oh, these are clearly the <laughs> Wu Madang, right? <laughs> you know, the- yes, exactly. And even that was somewhat revelatory because, I mean, go go to Amazon and look at books by Liu Xiaobo or think of, you know, uh, Wei Jingsheng. You think of the biggest, baddest dissidents in the West you can think of. They don't even have these one-star trolls attacking them, which shows you this was one of the things that was so unique about the campaign is the trolls weren't just trying to impact discourse around the book within China, but they were taking very calculated steps internationally, such as going to Amazon in the US or Germany and trying to break the book's legs with one-star reviews to defame the writer and defame the project. And to some degree, they were successful because Fang Fang today 
unfortunately, there's a lot of people who now call her the witch of lies and the traitor of China, whereas at the beginning of the outbreak, she was the conscience of China. She was the voice of Wuhan, and she was loved by tens of millions of people. And unfortunately, when you silence the voices of those supporters, and then you let the trolls to rise up and fill all of the virtual space online, people start believing what they're reading. Even my own students at UCLA come to me and say, well, I haven't read the diary, but according to what I read online, and then they start (laughs) parroting all of the trolls' attacks. And I think that's what's happened. Almost nobody now reads the actual diary. They just read the slanderous accounts, and they believe it. It's quite a tragedy, and it's probably the most protracted campaign against a single author, I I really think, since the Cultural Revolution. It's hard to find another example of something like this. Wow, that's indeed sad. But I'm also very glad that you took the initiative for that project and at least made that available here to our, our Western world. I always feel that we're here for a limited time on this planet, and our life's is burning away like a candle and we want to do something meaningful and leave something behind and make a contribution. I think that the topic of your podcast about learning Chinese, you know, this is something I could do with the language, right? And utilizing the language to try to make this important voice heard outside of China, especially as the trolls got louder and louder, the more inspired I was to speak out for Fang Fang and to make sure that her voice was heard. Mm -hmm. Well, Michael, I'm curious to know, I mean, you've done a lot of translation work. You've been involved in literature, cinema. How do you see the future importance of Chinese? One thing that I often talk about is this cultural disparity that is deeply, deeply ingrained. And what I mean by that, everyone's been talking about the trade war, right? The the U.S.-China trade war, the last, or the trade imbalance, The cultural imbalance, I think, is much greater. And to break that down, I mean, you lived in China for a long time. You know if you go to a high school in China or go to a college in China and just talk to random kids and ask them, hey, have you heard of Abraham Lincoln? Have you heard of Martin Luther King? Have you heard of Kennedy? Have you heard of Mark Twain? Every kid can tell you who those people are. You walk around UCLA, where I teach, or almost any U.S. college campus, and you randomly talk to non-Chinese students and ask them, who is Lu Xun? Who is Zhou Enlai? You're going to get a lot of blank stares and question marks. The point is, people in China have a very high level of cultural literacy about America, about the world, whereas here in the U.S., I think we're really lagging behind, shamefully behind. And that translates to the disparity in language learning. I mean, learning English is is a basic component for so many kids around the world, but learning foreign languages here in the U.S. Just think back to my own experience I shared about learning French and Spanish. It's to pass a test. It's to check a box off a piece of paper. And I think we got a, a long way to go. And the ramifications of that cultural disparity, I think, are really too great to ignore. It translates into so many practical things in terms of diplomacy and politics and trade and negotiations. And when people from China and people from the U.S. come together, say, in a business meeting, and they know all about your pop culture and your political history and your economic system and your political system, and you know nothing about them. It says a lot, and it also puts you at a great disadvantage. And and it's not just in terms of the practical things, but also just the human side. You know, there's a certain arrogance, and it's really a shame, I think, where we're at. And one of the great ways we can all address this cultural disparity is you put your boots on, you get there and get you do the hard work, you do the heavy lifting, you learn that language. I mean, this is not a new thing, but it's becoming more prominent because China is becoming more prominent in the world as their economy is getting larger and larger. I mean, I study film. Right now, the biggest box office in the world is the Chinese box office market. It's surpassed yeah. the US. And yeah. you've got these film producers who want to do business in China, and they've never heard of Feng Xiaogang, you know, they, you know, one of China's most popular film directors over the last couple of decades. They know everything that Variety has written about 
China in the last couple of months or Hollywood Reporter has published, but you dig a little bit deeper and it's empty. And we need to go deeper. We need to have that more nuanced understanding of the culture, the language, if you really want to have a meaningful interaction and collaboration and potential for that. Otherwise, I I fear we're just going to devolve into more of the dark political tensions that we've been seeing over the last uh, couple of years. Wow. Well, thanks for that, Michael. Now, if people want to find out more about you, where can they go? They can find me on Facebook, on Twitter, I, you know, my webpage at UCLA. If they just Google my name, Michael Berry, UCLA, you can find links to most of my books. That's probably the easiest way. I'm also on Chinese social media, like Weibo, you can find me there. And I'd encourage you, if you found any of this interesting, Michael's website, like I said, has lists of all these interviews that he's done, articles, and you'll find links to the, maybe the different books that he's published as well. Well, Michael, I appreciate you so much for being on our podcast and sharing your perspective and your experience with all of us. I found it very fascinating and enlightening. Thank you, Jared. It's a pleasure to talk to you and uh, wishing you all the best and stay safe. You have been listening to the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. Help us spread the word by sharing this with your friends, classmates, teachers, cousins, cook, politician, therapist, weatherman, assistant, seamster, soldier, and that one kid named Ethan. You can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please write us a review so we know how we're doing. You can find us on Facebook and at mannercompanion.com. Apologies to John Cena, we just ran out of time. The You Can Learn Chinese podcast is produced by myself, Jared Turner, and our editor is Kaiser Guo at SubChina, and our interview editor is James Harper with Filter Productions. I'd like to thank our guest, Michael Berry, and of course, thanks to my co-host, the man, the myth, the legend, John Paston. See you next time.